The opinions and views expressed in this video are purely for entertainment purposes and not for investment advice. Welcome YouTubers to Jack the Vault Trades. I'm here with Brandon this week. He's back. Caitlin, unfortunately, is not. Um, so we're going to have to make do. But we are excited for this episode because I think we're going to touch on some very important topics. Um, we know the market's been, uh, been having a little tantrum lately, and we want to talk about why uh, the markets are, ha are having a tantrum and, um, and why we think um, there's nothing to be afraid of. Um, with that, yeah, Brandon, what do, you, what do you think of happening this week? Yeah, we have a lot to talk about this week, and we have a lot to clear up, especially with the inflation numbers. We had earnings this week, and uh, we had some big moves when it came to bond yields. So I think a great place to start would be to pop up the inflation numbers in the article. Inflation speeds up in April as consumer prices leap 4.2%. So, so the bullshit thing that I'm always talking about, CPI is finally up. Big deal. Well, this was really to be expected, because if you turn the clock back one year to April of 2020, global markets were in absolute freefall due to the worldwide lockdowns and closures of businesses and all of the uncertainty about the pandemic at that point. I warned on this show just a couple of weeks ago, the inflation numbers would be super hot in April due to the weak comps from last year. So I really think that this entire inflation narrative is a false premise. It's completely exaggerated. And I also think that it's an illusion and that many new investors are falling for it. They're getting scared out of their stock positions. And of course, when you compare those numbers to this year's numbers and people don't realize it's a one year comp, you're comparing it to last year, you're going to see a substantial uptick. So 4.2% to me, it's really nothing to worry about. Glad and I always find it interesting or, or ridiculous when the markets react uh, to um so like so they say economists surveyed by Dow Jones have been looking for 3.6 and then they're like oh you know the reality missed estimates I'm like no the reality is the reality estimates miss reality it's always backwards how, you know how does it work the other way around right so but but yeah I, I agree like so let so the things that I want to put out there is like there's there's different ways to categorize inflation and there's different ways to to explain price increases. Because I think what people think inflation is is not what's going on. And I think that's really important to talk about, right? So I think the For biggest sure. fear is... When you look at a lot, of, um, a lot of the things that are increasing in prices, a lot of them are very commodity-based. And when you look at many of these things, they were due to shortages that were created by COVID. From lumber to steel to semiconductors to copper, you know, we're spending time in our homes indoors. We want to do some renovations. Interest rates are low, so you can borrow money to finance that. People are upgrading their digital infrastructure. They need more semiconductor chips. COVID has shut down the lumber mills, uh, the copper mines, adding to these supply uh, disruptions. And we had a fire at one of the biggest uh, microchip plant for automobiles. It's been a perfect storm, but yeah. a lot of these things are self-correcting. Because, uh, you know, for example, when oil prices go up, more firms begin to be profitable. They can drill for more oil and uh, prices go down. It's supply and demand. It's, econ um, it's economics 101. So um, a lot of these things really are self-correcting. Not only that, but I think there's a lot of, um, we're talking about this, there's, so, there's a lot of, I think, parties just taking advantage of the situation, kind of hiding yeah. behind this inflation narrative. Like, That's a really good point. Right. I mean, like lumber is like what it's it's three times the price that it should be. And what did for the force of the world just burn down? Like it's that's you know, what I mean, it's it's not quite supply and demand right now. It's some artificial price increases. 
And we were also talking about the um, manufacturers and distributors trying to sort of maintain their margins. Oh yeah, let's, uh, Sam, if you could pull up my screen, I want to show this chart. This is a, so this represents March and April and you have an XY axis showing input prices versus output prices. So this is showing countries manufacturing and what they're paying their suppliers for in terms of raw material and what they're charging their finished goods for. Anybody below this red line is um, charging less than the cost of their, or charging less than the increase in prices of their supplies. Everybody above that line is charging more. And you look at US, Taiwan, Brazil, Canada, even Germany, yeah. these guys are charging more it, uh, it, more than what it, uh, um, than the price increases of their of their supplies, and so like this it's is like everyone is essentially above that line except for Australia and Philippines uh, consistently. Yeah, like this is just like if if you needed any more visualization of what is going on, it's like opportunity. Like I think like when we talked about this, I think people are or manufacturers are trying to claw back from the COVID shutdown, and they're just kind of taking this opportunity to do so. Yeah, it's for sure, and it's. It's uh, really funny when a lot of uh, new investors are starting to cheer uh, 100 basis point increase in the U.S. 10-year bond. Uh, they don't realize that we live in an economy that's completely disinflationary by nature. We have factors such as globalization, uh, decreasing populations in developing countries in the Western world, gains in productivity, um, advances in technology, the list goes on and on, but we live in a very disinflationary environment here. And I think uh, Japan is a good example of that. They've been easing, they've been printing money for the last like three decades. Like for both of our lifetimes, Japan has had near zero interest rates. They're negative now and they can't get any form of inflation whatsoever. Uh, this isn't some small country we're talking about. It's the third largest economy in the world. Um, Europe is um, essentially going the way of Japan too. Uh, almost every single country in Europe has negative interest rates. And um, some people may ask, hey, what does interest rates have to you know, do with CPI? But they're like directly related. Like a lot of people don't realize that there's one thing that I can tell people right now, it's that the bond market is the kink. It's larger than the stock market, it's smarter, and it's a leading indicator. It's the greatest prognosticator for the stock market. Um, so when people talk about easing and they talk about money printing and they talk about some sort of debasement of currencies and why you should be investing in cryptocurrencies or gold because we're going to have some sort of hyperinflation, it doesn't add up. I think the Fed um, understands that. And the Fed realizes that our greater problem is not having too much inflation. It's that we're having too little inflation. Uh, I think now would be a good time probably to pop up the M2 money supply chart. First, pop oh, yeah. it up, not in log, just so people can have um, an understanding of what yeah. uh, a log really does to the... Um, does no log, yeah. all right. There you go. I'm a big log guy too, and I think it's important that we look at them in both. Uh, so this is the uh, M2 money supply on monthly charts. Each week is a monthly, and you see this is the effect of COVID right there. So, and and this goes back how far? Just so our viewers know. Oh shoot! Let's see. 80, 80, 1980, 81, December okay, to eighty. Perfect. And like that's when I would say that the um, uh, the long term bull market and bonds started. It started in the like early to mid eighties. Now, what would a um, a new investor think when they see this? They would think that 
uh, we're having some sort of inflation, our dollars are being debased, we have to uh, get out of dollars, there's going to be a new um, world, um, a new sort of world currency. What would they say to this? Honestly, if they're a new investor, I'm not sure they would even know what they're looking at and what the M2 money supply is, to be frank. Um, but like, I, I want to point out, though, like, so just, just kind of going back to, like, the, uh, the bond yields and the inflation thing, right? So, like, I, I, I think a lot of people don't quite uh, make the connection of the two. And so it's like, if you have an environment, an economy where prices are increasing to at a really at a really accelerated rate that means the economy is too hot right so that means the, the the cost of borrowing is too low generally speaking there's too much money so the fed raises interest rates you if you raise the if you if you make increase the cost of borrowing then that disincentivizes people to spend when people don't spend prices end up dropping so that's the relationship there just want to point that out that that is absolutely the relationship there but if we can just go back to the chart because yeah. The whole premise that I'm hearing from all these new investors is that we're seeing the greatest uh, printing of money in the history of humankind. We're going to have a lot of inflation. We need to buy Bitcoin. We, like that's what I've been hearing. So uh, I think this chart just um, embodies that. And while they may not know what the M2 money supply is, they know what money printing is. I mean, money printer going burr. That's all that I've been hearing this year and why it's been a great idea to buy Bitcoin. And that couldn't be further from the truth. So could you just, just one second, could you put that M2 money supply in log so people can see what the actual effects of the money printing is on a percentage basis? Oh, this is log. That is log. Okay. And so, then it's more straight, to, so it's more straightened. And then compare that to 2008. That, yeah, nothing. Nothing. Exactly. So my whole point here is that we've been easing for the last 15 years, 15 years plus, and we can't have any form of inflation whatsoever. Um, we've been undershooting the Fed's 2% target um, for the last 15 years. And cumulatively, if you add that all together, uh, we've undershot by 6% in the US and by over 8% in Europe. So the fact of the matter is inflation is too low. It's running a little bit hot right now, but as we see these uh, sort of price trends start to uh, reach some sort of equilibrium, um, we're going to uh, see better comps and um, inflation is probably going to run back to 2% and even lower. Yeah, I mean, so this, it's complicated though, because like the, I know the reason the, the OA, we didn't really see, well, we didn't see any inflation from this ridiculous QE was because the money that they printed never made it into the broad money supply. It was um, it was base money that that, that went to the, the banks, right? They, it, it was it was the banks. There was the Fed gave the money, the banks to the money, uh, the money to the banks, and so they could cover their debts and whatnot, their obligations. And but it never made it into the broad money supply. This time, though, they have stim direct stimulus payments, and so that's why we actually have some of that extra money leaking to the the economy. But I do agree that. But is it going yeah, yeah. to the economy actually? Because people are taking their stimulus checks and they're buying Bitcoin and they're buying uh, speculative stocks. No, you're right. But that's what I mean. Like it actually made it into the hands of people this time versus being kind of like hoarded off in the banks. But but, and but savings I do. are up. You you did yes. bring up a good point last time. Savings are up. People are paying down that, their debt. That is so down. If you've been doing that, man. Um, good for you. Yeah, Save, savings are up. Debts are down. And I think what is causing the debate is that. 
if there was inflation from the increase of broad money supply, I don't think it would look like this. It would be a lot worse. And so to it your would. point, there's a lot of there's a lot of other factors. It's kind of like there's kind of like a tug of war going on right now. And uh, well, sure. And if you look at uh, I think the tug of war is between um, uh, the increase in the money supply and the velocity of money, which we uh, got a chart of that uh, last time. And they are like inversely correlated. One's going up and one's going down. So uh, I think the velocity of money really proves that point that um, money's really not going in the system the way that they intended it to. That's actually I didn't know that because quite a few years ago, somebody sent me an article, the, uh, you probably heard of it, the dollar milkshake theory. Yeah. And I read that thing. I thought this was complete nonsense. And I think so from what you just said, this, it's playing out. It's, it is nonsense. It is. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's really interesting. But, I think um, probably um, the U.S. tenure yield yeah. uh, would just um, be good to look at right now. U.S. tenure yield, pop it up on like a monthly. Yeah. That is a monthly, a isn't monthly. it? Yeah, yeah exactly. Monthly. I'm not sure if you got any moving averages on there. I think a 50 month would be probably the best indicator to put on there. Here's a 50, 128, and 200. Yeah, you can hide the other two. They They really... The 50 month is the most important. And then just like zoom out so we can get a really good uh, kind of long-term sort of picture on there. We know that technology is deflationary. We don't even have to get into that too much. But you can see like this is what technology and globalization and uh, uh, decreasing population does to your inflation, does to your interest rates. We're in a long-term downtrend for interest rates. And I don't see any of those major components changing. So um, we had a hundred basis point increase, which really from that low of a level, we're still at like very depressed rates. It's not a big move whatsoever. We're getting close to tagging that 50. We will as we consolidate and as the 50 moves down. And I think that this low interest rate environment is here to stay. And uh, we could uh, possibly even get a retest of that, uh, of that low. What are your thoughts on um, central banks kind of hesitant as one factor to increase rates to kind of like save or continue the uh, the housing market, like kind of save them to keep them going? Because like as soon as you raise interest rates, you might do some economic damage there. Because I mean, especially so now after COVID, I don't think anybody is rushing to raise interest rates. I think what they may do is taper the bond purchases. Like yeah. does 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 the Federal Reserve really need to be purchasing like upwards of $40 billion of, um, of bonds every month? Like, could they maybe taper that down a bit and uh, work towards, you know, maybe normalizing rates down the road? Like, just kind of do it piecemeal, do it one step at a time? Yeah, you actually brought up a really good point. I, um, I, speaking of opportunists, I think governments are opportunists right now. They feel like they got a blank check because of COVID and they could just pass whatever, you know, regulatory laws they want and just and just go to the central banks and say, hey, fund us, right? Biden's $3 trillion infrastructure thing, half of it isn't even real infrastructure. It's not roads, yeah. it's not bridges. It's like, what the fuck, right? Canada, we have the same issue here. It's, yeah, uh, we've got the same exact issue. Um, and I think it's, you know, about, you know, stimulating the economy, which I don't think needs any more stimulation at this point. Um, I think they're going a little bit overboard with that, but... Again, I don't, I don't, I don't think it's going to inflect, uh, affect our interest rates. I don't think it's going to affect 
um, this long-term downtrend. I think that the components are in place uh, for what we've dealt with for the last like 15 years or even, you know, 30, 40 years. Um, just nothing's changing. I think COVID's a little bit of a temporary road bump. But like I said before, the bond market's smartest, biggest market in the world. So if it's telling us 10 years from now, rates are 1.6, I'm trusting that. I'm not trusting a CNBC article. Uh, I'm rolling with Jerome Powell. Yeah, the uh, the bond market's got a lot more liabilities to protect. They have a lot more incentive to figure out what's going on in the macro scale. And they got bigger players too. Big and they big, got players big. that are in it for the long term. We're not talking about day traders here. We're yeah. talking about um, you know central bankers, insurance companies, big hedge funds. Uh, these people, um, these institutions, Balance. they really. Yeah. They really uh, are what move the market. And um, as they say, the bond market leads the stock market. So the bond market is usually always right. The stock market can be wrong and it's been wrong a lot. So going on, following that though. So let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about what to do now, because if we're right, and this textile off on fake inflation fears is absolute bullshit, then are people positioning themselves incorrectly listening to certain analysts saying let's go to energy let's you know what i mean like what do you think definitely i think that people are uh over positioned right now with like the deep cyclical stocks uh we can look at a few indices that embody that we can look at the russell iwm we can look at the dow jones we can look at the tsx uh, before we get to that, let's just uh, like just set the notion that uh, cyclical sectors are industrials, financials, energy, and materials. The vast majority of materials, materials X gold, let's say, right? And then in terms of non-cyclical sectors, we got tech, we got healthcare, we got utilities, REITs, telcos, uh, and bonds too, and gold, if I didn't already say that. Uh, so I think that right now uh, we're in the final innings of that energy trade, that inflation trade, the financials, like if you see some of the U.S. regional banks, they're very expensive at this point, and they're very stretched above their moving averages versus uh, you've seen a lot of people flee the technology space. I think you want to be, you want to reach for a little bit of growth. You don't want to reach for two months. Uh, too much growth. Me and you were talking about that spectrum earlier where, you know, you had really deep value on this side. You had really speculative growthy stocks with like no earnings and uh, no visibility on this side. And then, you know, the further you get, you know, into here, you have more value growth companies. And like I was saying, you want to be positioned like right here with your, like your Apples and your Amazons and your Facebooks and, uh, um, you know, names where you can get that, you know, 20% revenue growth, but you're, um, uh, you have good earnings, you have visibility, uh, you get a dividend perhaps, and uh, you have just good growth prospects, even when, uh, you know, growth, you know, isn't, you know, 6% like it is this year, uh, you can sort of have your cake and eat it too, so to speak. Yeah, I agree. I think, um, I mean, the way I'm looking at it right now, for me specifically, I'm looking at this as an opportunity because tech was overvalued like that's that's not you know and there's a lot of bullshit companies out there the SPACs the whatnots and then I view this as an opportunity because this is a good shakeout everybody got uh got a haircut so now the opportunity is like identifying which companies are quality and that's the ones you want to put your money in not the quantum scapes not the Nicolas or whatever find 
find like you're saying quality growth stocks and because you're going to get them at a discount right now what is that? Well, even even those companies that you listed, like some of them are still overvalued. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, like some of these companies that I was looking at, like they're down like 70 percent and they're still trading like 20, 30 times 2021 uh, enterprise value to revenue. Like I would never look at these companies. And then you look at a company like uh, Facebook or Amazon and they're trading like 20 times next year's earnings. I'm like, hmm, this is that's value to me. And I, I get my 20, 25% growth. And um, I also get it at that good valuation. Um, it's like sort of Garpy growth at a reasonable price, which uh, I really do <laughs> like. Um, so I definitely agree with that. Why are you laughing? No, I love that term. That's it's awesome. I love it. I I love it from yeah. You. Uh, yeah, those are um, the companies that you want to really be in. You get an excellent company at a great price. Usually you have to um, make some sort of um, sort of compromise. You get a great company, but you get it a little more expensive or you get a company that's, you know, not the best company, but it's, you know, you get it at a really good valuation. I feel like right now you really can, again, have your cake and eat it too. And if you just pop up the NASDAQ on like, I think probably a weekly time frame. Let's do Russell, sorry. There you go. Weekly, yep. There you go. Ooh. Yeah. So we were talking about the NASDAQ on my, the first time I was on the podcast. What was that? Like maybe four weeks ago? Weeks no, ago, actually yeah. more. It was like six weeks ago. And I was essentially saying we're going to have another shot at 14,000, but we're probably not going to break it on the first try. And we didn't break it on the first try. I thought like my, my base case was that we were going to have to go down to that sort of uh, diagonal trend line that you have. But if we did, in fact, set a new daily cycle low on Thursday, uh, it would make sense because on these daily cycle lows, you do tend to uh, break these uh, diagonal trend lines. Then we're going to be moving up to 14,000 pretty fast. I always say that the most powerful uh, part of any rally is the beginning. That's when you have the most torque. That's when you have the most momentum. It stuns people. People are like, deer in the headlights because they you know they sold on thursday thinking oh this thing's going lower and all of a sudden it just absolutely just boomerangs on the way up um and if you look at it on if you look at it on a weekly time frame you'll see exactly what i mean because you'll see the two uh lower wicks if you can just kind of zoom in on those two lower wicks you'll see exactly what i mean yeah exactly so you know we had one shot and that uh, diagonal uh, trend line, that was the base case. We just undercut that uh, just slightly. Um, and then yesterday, we completely defended that 13,000 level. We closed at like 13.4. If you pop it up on an hourly now, you'll see that we broke the 50 period on the one hour, uh, which was resistance uh, the last time around. So we uh, broke it there. But if you just zoom back a little bit more, you'll see that was resistance um, at our base case. So this is showing uh, bullish confirmation, uh, bullish divergence on the four-hour chart, and uh, this supports a um, this supports a move up to fourteen thousand uh, in the early to middle parts of next week. Yeah, this is. Um, I mean, it doesn't actually look that bad, but this is the Nasdaq, right? They've had it the worst. Well, it is all about narratives. When you enter these daily cycle lows, 
you have everybody saying the stock market's going to crash, it's overvalued, the bull market's lower, and it's the exact opposite. These are the times that you want to be buying. So we were talking about, um, uh, me, you, and Kaylin, we were talking about how to deal with bear markets and market corrections. You can expect two 10% corrections in any given year. And those are almost always incredible buying opportunities. Um, and, and, and that's exactly what this was. That's exactly so, what this was. So that's the, uh, the indexes, right? You're saying they'll have like 10%? Yeah. So that on any given year, you'll have uh, two 10% garden variety corrections, like the tomatoes, garden variety. Nothing special, um, just sort of 10%. And everybody says that they want to buy the next stock yeah. market correction, but they never do because they get scared and they say, oh, it's going to go lower. I'll be able to get it when it's like 15% down, 20% down, and they miss out. So everyone wants to buy stock market corrections until you get one. Yeah, I think uh, this is a good segue to touch on how people should adjust their psychology to deal with these things in the future because they're going to continue happening, right? And like, if we're talking about like a 10% pullback on an index. That means like the high flyers within like the NASDAQ, you're going to look, you know, 15, 20%, right? And For sure. so like the higher beta stocks are going to go down like 20, 30, 40%. Like ugh, we can talk about so many, like, I don't want to single anyone out, but I'll do it right now. Yeah. Shopify, Spotify, Coinbase, uh, any of the new SPACs, uh, any of the cryptos, in my opinion, uh, that's the next uh, shoot to drop, but we'll have to talk about that later when we talk about your bet. Um, and just go back to the NASDAQ for one second. I just want to show people why this is not the end of the bull market. Zoom out. Pop it up on a monthly time frame. You can get rid of the yeah monthly time frame. Pop it up on log too. You're on log, right? Yeah. Always. That's a 16 year basing pattern from the year 2000 to the year like 2016. Uh, so around like 5,000, it was like mid 5,000s. That was the 2,000 high during the dot-com boom. We're just in the early innings or early mid innings of this NASDAQ rally. You don't consolidate for 16 years and trade like 30% above your 50 month. And like, that's the end of the rally. And we did have the retest during COVID. We had the retest there. So the old stock market quote is that bull markets don't end in a whimper. And that is completely accurate here. Like you don't just top after, you know, the NASDAQ goes up like 250%. Like there's a lot more to go in this NASDAQ rally. It's going to be led by the FANG stocks. It's going to be led by the semiconductors. Some of the high beta names too, it's going to be led by. Um, the bull market doesn't top here. Can I just point out something I just saw that, Oh, I don't know. <laughs> you see it, right? Yeah. Uh, the fractal. So I think people, for people that don't know, so I'm looking at the 12 months. So each candle represents a year. So this is uh, with the NASDAQ from 74 on, on to today. And this structure right here is what I'm looking at. This yeah. long, long, nice rally and two pullbacks. Now let's go on the monthly and we see a fractal of that. Actually, maybe even the weekly. There you go. There we go. Beautiful. There it is. That is exactly what happened on the macro scale. And, and what this happened is just like a longer version of the consolidation, uh, the pre-election consolidation back in like October, November. Yeah. We, had to, we, had to, we, we had to consolidate for two and a half months. So 
I think that you're exactly uh, bang on with your fractal. And what I would also do to a line that's very overused on this show, but we make a move to 14,000 this week. What do we have there? We got a cup and handle. We've got an ascending triangle, cup and handle. We'll be making new highs in the RSI because the momentum is going to be taken up. So I like the setup. For a move to like probably 17 to 18,000, if you measure the point of breakout from the last consolidation to the previous, uh, to the most recent consolidation here, I say 17 to 18,000. Maybe we overshoot. Maybe we go to that psychological 20,000 level, uh, but it's going to be led by the FANG stocks. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I think I think maybe we we talked about this privately before, but I thought like a lot of manage a lot of money managers and people who are in the market today came up in the two thousands the dot com bubble. Like they made the name there, they made the money there, and I think a lot of them are either scarred by or whatever. They just they just don't believe in tech, and I agree, tech back then is not what it is today. And but I think they're missing the boat right now because. But who's that famous guy that uh, that made that, that wrote said the quote like you know um, an idea whose time is nothing more something about it an idea whose time has arrived. Was, uh, Victor Hugo, and I think that was from he was he was the guy that wrote Les Mis, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and I, yeah. I totally butchered the quote, but I mean, like, and I think the thing that's the thing: technology's time has like, arrived. There's nothing more powerful than an idea whose time idea has arrived. We should put that um, on the thumbnail, or we should put that up right here because I think that's. I love that quote. That's we it. That's actually it one time in one of our investment commentaries, and it's so true. And we were talking about technology back in 2016 when we were uh, positioned our portfolios with names like Amazon, names like Apple, Facebook, and Google, and Microsoft, as well as Nvidia and some of the others. And it was just um, really the early innings of uh, what we were seeing with the um, uh, the beginning of uh, the Amazon economy, as I like to call it. Yes. And the, you know, like everything was so early back then, microchips was developed, but it was it's nothing like we have today. The internet's nothing like we have today. Well, if you think and about the, it this way, the GPU, uh, which uh, uh, Nvidia, the company was uh, based on, it was created in the year nineteen ninety nine. Yeah, yeah. It's young. Uh, John, uh, Sam, can you pull up the screen? I, 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 this is all about my memories. I don't know if I pulled this up last week, but I think I did. I, I want to ask you, what do you think this is? So I already know what that is. Uh, yeah. Did you so, so did you watch? So me and you talked about this a while ago. And oh, does that say oil panic on it? Because if it is, that is a Mr. Game and Watch game from like <laughs> the 80s, maybe? The early to mid-80s, yeah. They made 50 or almost 59, almost 60 of these things because it's only one game per console or per unit, right? And they, they never sold. But this form factor should be very familiar to anybody that you know grew up in the last 10, 15 years, right? This is the the, it's the, the Nintendo DS. DS. That's right. And this is and this product was early. All it was was an alarm clock and a calculator, I think, back then. But wow. when the te when technology arrived, it became the DS, and that is the highest selling um, I guess gaming console, mini console the, in of all time. So yeah. So I think Nintendo's an amazing company. It's one of my favorite companies out there. It was founded like, I want to say 150 years ago. And they tried literally everything. They yeah. were selling ramen noodles at one point. They were selling trading cards. They were trading our company. They had a fleet of taxi cabs. They had like a hotel business, a love hotel business, if you know what that is. Um, they tried everything and they failed at a lot of these things. But it wasn't until... 
the release, I think it was the early 80s of Donkey Kong, their first gaming release. It was an arcade game that they actually found something that stuck. And it's just such an amazing story of resiliency and uh, adapting to the times and just a company that just didn't give up. And you know what? That that mentality, it translated, even though they're sticking with games. It's People forget their failures, but they came up with a lot of stuff that really sucked. I mean, I can't remember what it's called now, but when I was a kid, they came out with this thing that you could put on your Nintendo. It, made, it turned it 3D, but it didn't really, right? It, I but think it, it's called Virtual Boy. Virtual Boy, that's it. That's, that's it. it. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's it. I remember that thing. I mean, it was a and flop. And it was a big like, flop. It was a big flop. And Nintendo had a lot of flops. Like, I believe the Wii U was a really big flop for them. Uh, but then they just rallied back and they created the Nintendo Switch, which is like one of the most popular consoles of all time. Um, and Pokemon is the best-selling franchise, media franchise in the world. More than Mickey Mouse, Winnie the Pooh, Hello Kitty, any media franchise that you can think about, Pokemon is number one. And I think Mario may be number two or number three, but it's it's like right there. So they just um, executed. They have great franchises like Zelda and, uh, you know, all these other great games. Fire Emblem, they got the Switch. They got... Uh, all these amazing online games. They haven't uh, felt the need to do what everyone else is doing with mobile games, and they won't license their games on other sort of consoles or platforms. They're very, like, rigid on what they do, but they just um, they stick to their guns. They're very innovative, and it's just, uh, just a great, great company. I think that Nintendo is just a fucking awesome story. I think this just leads me to a, a really good um, a topic. So because I wanted to touch on what people should do if you find yourself in a market downturn like this. Maybe you're stuck in some positions that you don't like. You bought some companies that you're kind of questioning now, right? Like everything looks like attractive when it's going up. But then when it's losing you money, you're like, shit, maybe I shouldn't have bought this thing, right? And this is a really good time for people to reassess their investments and like and reassess why they invested in this company in the first place. Are the fundamentals good? And going to the Nintendo thing, it's like, yeah, companies can make mistakes, but if you have good leadership, good leadership can turn around a company. And so, like, if you're buying companies, look at the leadership. Don't just look at the product. Don't just look at what the media thinks of it. Look at their leadership because they can turn around. They can make a bad decision, but they can turn it around. Well, when you think about companies that uh, survived the dot-com boom and bust, like Jeff Bezos, like he's one of the ultimate leaders in the world, uh, or Elon Musk, he had some very difficult times just a couple of years ago. Uh, what about Steve Jobs? Uh, what about uh, Jensen Huang, who is leading the most innovative company in the world today in NVIDIA? Um, right. So, yeah, I think leadership is one of the most important things. But the biggest problem right now is that people, they buy on like stock tips or they go on, I don't know, I'm hearing people go on these like trading forums, these yeah. groups, these Telegram or... Telegram. Yeah, paid groups. Yeah, paid groups that's that's the scam that's the scam you you because these guys can make more money you know getting subscription from the groups than they can in the market so why not right okay so i feel like a lot of people are yeah it's just absolutely wild i feel like a lot of people are investing on like stock tips like we were talking on people that were buying dogecoin or buying ripple because their neighbor got rich doing that. So they're like, okay, I'm going to buy Ripple. But when it goes down 10%, 20%, 50%, 80%, you have no reason to sell because you never actually believed in the fundamentals. 
But if there's a company that you really truly believe in, you know the management, you know the business, you've looked at the balance sheet, you've you read the investor presentations, you love the company and you just really can rally with that company and stick behind it and you know it inside and out, even if there's a 10% downturn, 20% downturn, you're not going to sell. You're probably going to you know, hold your ground, maybe even buy more if you believe in the company and you have a diversified portfolio and you, know, you want to you know, average up or average down, you always have the opportunity to do so. But when you know a company well and when you believe in it, you'll never panic sell. You never will because you believe in it. I lived it. 2015 to 2019, in a five-year span, these guys did three 35% plus corrections and two 50% corrections. That's almost one every year. Right. It, it, wow. it tests one's conviction to like hold this stock. And like I said, like, sure, when it pulls back 35%, I'm not like sipping my ties. I'm trying to figure out what's going on. Right. But if I'm looking at the company, I'm like, well, they're still increasing sales. They're still increasing margin. They're still increasing revenue. What am I freaked out about? The stock price is having a tantrum, but the company is doing great. And I think that's what people should look I have at. so much respect for you, brother. I mean, the fact that you, you know, had that thesis and you stuck by it. Even, you know, when the times were good and the times were bad and you stuck by it, because when you talk about a three year downturn and 35 percent, people that haven't lived through that, they don't understand what it actually feels like to go through that in real time. You know, every night to go to bed, you know, looking at that stock chart and having that in your mind and to wake up every morning, like in real time, it's a hell of a lot longer than just saying, oh, I sat through three years. Oh, and, and to make matters worse. I'm not a diversified portfolio guy. I'm a stock picker. I hold like one or two things. Yeah, you, you do the same. So like when it's a stock a concentrated portfolio because you're trying to yeah. capture upside gains. Oh yeah, I want that alpha. Which makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So like, because I believe I'm, I'm from the Peter Lynch school of stock picking, right? So it's like, why am I diversifying? If I'm diversifying, that means I don't have any conviction in my investments, you know? So, so I have conviction in Tesla. And at the time, that was my only holding. So when it pulls back 35%, that means my entire portfolio portfolio is down 35%. If it pulls back 50, my entire portfolio is down 50. And it's also so like, just a little bit of a hit to the ego because you're seeing everything yeah. that's completely irrational. There's always, um, there's always a bubble somewhere. There's always a greater fool theory binary yeah. game going on somewhere. Uh, so for you to have the patience and not to just sell at a loss and jump to the next, you know, uh, binary game, as I call them, but for you to actually uh, to stick with it is great. And I think that you absolutely deserve every dollar that you made because the market rewarded you for your patience. And that's exactly what it is. The fact of the matter is that people will, um, uh, you know, they're heavily invested in a name and they're dealing with these like really rough weeks and really rough months and they sell and they take a loss and they don't realize that the market gives you your 10% a year, gives you your 12% a year for sticking through tough times. That's where uh, your reward's made. And that's why the vast majority of retail investors don't make any money in this market. They don't what's make that, anything. What's that Warren Buffett quote? Um, the market is a mechanism for transferring wealth from the patient to the or impatient to the patient. That's exactly it. And that's what's happening. That's exactly what's happening right now. It's the greatest tool for that. And that's exactly what's happening right now because you see people um, you know, flocking to Dogecoin or flocking to Shiba Inu coin or whatever Shiba Inu coin, man. I never thought that I would see the day. It's crazy. So I'm dying when I think about that because like to, to you, especially 
Bitcoin is a very risk on, very you know volatile asset. But that's not enough not for risk on to me. Do you know what Bitcoin is? It's a non-productive asset. People I'll say that Bitcoin is gold 2.0. That doesn't mean anything to me because gold is an asset that gives you less than 1% return per year when the stock market gives you on average seven. And I'm not just pulling out numbers here. These are the actual annualized yeah. number from the year 1800 to the year 2021. You have an asset that gives you like 0.7%, less than 1%. Then you have an asset class that gives you like eight. Which one am I going to choose? Am I going to choose a productive asset class that provides you with a nice earning stream and dividends or something that just sits there and does nothing and just promises to be a great form of um, uh, protection of inflation? Like to me, it makes no sense. It makes yeah. no sense. And then you have coins like popping up Shiba Inu coin and Akita coin and every dog breed out there now has their own like billion dollar uh, sort of coin out there. It just uh, it's completely irrational. No, but that's my point. I'm like saying like for, for many institutions, Bitcoin is already like a high risk asset. And then you have retail that just bypasses Bitcoin because it's boring. And then they go to altcoins like Doge, no fundamentals, it moves. So let's invest in it. And now they're going a step further, like stupid squirts. Like even Doge is like, we don't, it doesn't have the returns we want to go to Shiba Inu. Like what the fuck? Yeah, that's because 2000% in a week wasn't enough. Uh, yeah. But the yeah. real fact of the matter is it's a narrative thing and it's a herd mentality thing. At the end of the day, I always say this and just remember this and quote me on this. Stocks go up with the least amount of people in them and down with the most. So at the end of the day, uh, people get comfort from being in large crowds. It's a hurting thing, right? So when you were in Tesla, you were, it was a very lonely time for you because not a lot of people were playing Tesla. People said it was overvalued. They said Elon Musk is an idiot. And they said that this thing's never going to pan out. They're losing too much money. It's a very lonely time for you, I can imagine. No, no, no time in its what 13, 14 year history has anybody said Tesla's fair value. It's been from day one, it's been overvalued. It's hilarious. Yeah. It's, it's a like a game, man. dude. It's just a game of like just sheep coming together. And at the end of the day, when this thing tops, this thing has already topped, by the way. I said it on your show about a month ago that Bitcoin topped. And I said that we would probably have some sort of head and shoulders pattern. Um, sort of form and we'll look at that in one minute but just let me say that when this thing does top and people realize it because right now people don't realize it right now people um do you remember the market psychology graph that i showed you the other day we're in that denial phase right now when it comes to crypto and the fact of the matter is once this thing really comes down and that neckline on the head and shoulders really 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 breaks you're gonna have a day where you look at your block folio or your coin market cap or your coin gecko and you're gonna see everything down like 50 to 60 percent and at the end of the day, you have the sheep are just, you know, they're all just trying to leave that little sheep pen. And uh, only so many of them can get out at once without just dumping the price. And, um, you know, there's always a bubble somewhere. So next year at this time, it's not going to be crypto. It's going to be something completely different. Um, so there's a reason why bubbles are a zero sum game. People don't make money in bubbles. People need to realize that. People don't make money because people don't sell. Well, I just, yo, I, I wanted to touch on that. So like, I think people need to kind of recalibrate their, um, their thinking, like, cause touching on what you, 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 you mentioned earlier, it's like this herd mentality thing, right? Like you're right. People are saying like, I'll, I'll sell on a pullback or I'll buy when it, when it hits the top. But then 
when it does hit the top, you're like, but it could go higher, and they never end up selling, right? It's it's the it's the weirdest thing, and I want people to consciously think about that because it's only by defeating that instinct that you can actually make some money in the market. I sell on the way up. I, I don't sell when things are on the way down. I question well, why I hold that with your Tesla shares. You were selling like at the peak or you were selling close to it. And I don't need you to be modest and say that you didn't because you got as close as anybody would have. And you took that and you bought yourself a really nice gift to always remember that trade. And it was just brilliant because like I said, markets go up with the least amount of people in them and down with the most. And that's exactly what happened there because you were in it when Tesla was like, dude, you made like 20 X on your Tesla. So congratulations on that. But you were in it like, I can't even figure out what the number was because there was a split there. Um, so I can't even figure out what it was, but you were buying at that level and you were selling closer to $900. And now at like 500, you're like, hmm, maybe now it's probably a better time to get in. And people are dumping their Tesla because they've already gotten wiped out because they were highly levered. They invested too much. Their portfolios were too concentrated. And this is just a classic story. Again, I'll say it one more time. Markets go up. With the, with the least amount of people in them and down with the most. Yeah, I, I wanna explain to people that it's not something that you do easily because when something's going up and everyone's bullish about it, you're the asshole on the side going, nope, it's gonna go down. Nope, it's gonna go down, it's gonna sell, right? And the thing is, so where I made my big money wasn't when Tesla hit 2,500. It was when it hit $1,000 the first time. It hit $1,000 the first time. I started selling as soon as it- What adjusted, what is that? Was it a four or five? Five, five, five to one. So, so that was what, like a two hundred dollar level? Uh, they split when it was around twenty five hundred. So it went down to five hundred bucks and then rallied again. Um. So, but uh, but it, once it broke its previous all time high, which was established in twenty sixteen three eighty five, I started selling. Why don't you put so it up I, on the chart just so we can see that? Oh yeah. Okay, why don't we do that? Let's uh, there we go. Got to get caffeinated here, man. It's been a long day. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so this, oh, this is the wrong chart. This is ugly. Oh, no. Fuck, I drew, the sh I drew the crap out of this one. Shit, let's go back to this one. Apologies, people. Anyway, this was the period that I was talking about in 2015 to 2019 where it was just like freaking bipolar. And that tests anybody's patience. Like, yeah. I don't know anybody besides you or me that would have stayed that, um, would have stayed with that because people are, always trying to chase the next, you know? Oh, multiple. you know what? Even worse, like people who try to time the market will get chewed up by this kind of volatility. They always find themselves on the wrong side of it, right? So trading it is even worse. Yeah, it's um, whipsaws. Yeah, but it was this rally. When it broke all time high here, uh, December, 2019, I started selling. So by the time it hit $1,000, I only had maybe 10% of my, I had 90% cash. Nice. And then COVID hit, it bottomed. So guess what I was doing? I was buying all the way down. And I what is that? This is the 50. Yeah. And that's yeah. the exact point that we're at right now. So I think people have to be cognizant of that. Yeah. It's like, oh, that's a great observation. Yeah. You're right. You're right. So, so, so that's, so imagine selling on the way up, buying on the way down. And then, so this is where I made, made my fortune. And again, I'm selling on the way up, not all the way, but I mean, like, a decent amount. Okay, I, can I mean, you take that chart out of log? Because a lot of people don't understand log. Take it out and... Uh, oh, yeah. Let's uh, see what it looks no, like. No, I want to see that. Yeah, exactly. That shows more so how much money that you made. Yeah. 
For many people, this is like the trade of a lifetime. I just, I, I just, I don't want to pump you up too much, but I just want to reiterate that because this is what patience will do. This is what patience for your portfolio, like this is the most important thing and you can't teach patience. You can't teach it. Patience, like, you know what though? Like I, I, I messaged somebody about this earlier. I was like, um, like I, I'm emotional like everybody else. I might be more emotional, which is why Kate, uh, Kaylin's a better trader than I am, but I'm also a data feed. You know that I'm always pulling up stats and stuff. And it's like, that's how I calm my emotions. I, I look at data. You're the king of research. You're always constantly, uh, you know, popping up, you know, new sort of news bites, whatever. This guy's great with that. I look at random things. I'll give you some random information that doesn't help anything, but it's like, just, hey, look at that. Um, but yeah, like this is a, a huge part of the psychology of both investing and trading, right? You, you can't, well, I'm just going to put it down. I'm just going to end it with, you can't be a part of the herd and expect to make money in the markets, whether you're trading or investing. Because by nature, in order to make money in the markets, you have to assume that the market is wrong. If you're moving with the market, how you're not going to find any inefficiencies. How are you supposed to profit from it, right? It's only when I was selling when everybody was buying that I made profit. And it's only when I was buying when everyone's selling that I got a deal, period. Well, the really great thing about that is that you're basically just touching on the psychology aspect, which I think is the most important aspect. But then you're seeing a lot of people that got burnt um, during, you know, that when did Tesla peak? It peaked in like January, right? Right after yeah, earnings. Like everybody, yeah. exactly everybody. And they delivered great earnings and the stock still fell. And everybody's wondering like, hey, man, the market's rigged. I bought Tesla at $900 and it fell, whatever. And people, they just don't realize, um, one, they're not looking at the bond market. They're not looking at yields and they're not realizing that, as we're saying, that shift from growth to value, that sort of temporary shift, which really was the ultimate shakeout in a stock like uh, mm. Tesla or any other sort of hyper growth stock. And they're not looking at, you know, the amount of people that are in profit and, 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 and how extended it was above a 50 month. And people don't realize when rates go up, multiples contract. So multiples go down on a stock like a Tesla, on a stock like, a, uh, you know, like a high tech stock or a very, very growthy stock. Um, so people, they're not, they're looking too much on the amount of money that they can make and they're looking in the rear view mirror, they're not looking forward. And they're not looking at like, what's happening right now? What's the economic backdrop? What do the, what does the bond market look like? Um, they're, they're just, they're just looking backwards. And the same thing's happening for Bitcoin, for Dogecoin, for Shiba Inu, people are chasing and chasing shit is dangerous. If they're looking at all, so I think that's part of the problem. I think me and Kaylin were talking about this last week. We're like, we think a lot of people are either get information from sources because it's easier that way and never question sources which is a huge mistake or they don't even look at the information at all and it's like at that point you're just gambling then right well we have too many people trading i think it just comes to that we have too many people that think that they can trade and they can time the market and people are excited they're at homes they're on their laptops with their robin hood whatever you know they made a couple bucks on a you know it it um and you were showing me the confetti on the robin hood right Somebody you showed you showed me you showed me yeah when you make a trade on Robinhood it the confetti falls and it's like wow congratulations you bought two shares of Tesla like that's just not the real world and the fact of the matter is is that um, these these markets top like like I said you know these 
bubbles will top. And we're seeing it right now in Bitcoin. I'm not sure how much time we have left, but we cannot finish an episode without popping up the Bitcoin chart. We just can't. Right here. Uh, let's see. All right, so we made a bet yeah. with Willy Wu a couple, what, a couple months ago, and you guys made a bet. You took the side that Bitcoin will close at or below 44,600 by the end of the year. Am I correct? By All the right. end of the year, that's correct. This and is the level right here. So this uh, Maroons thing is the level that Bitcoin's got to close at for me to win that bet. And we are, I don't know, I'm going to say 10% away. Oh, seven and a half. Wow, seven and a half percent away. So yeah, seven, like seven away. and a half, that could happen in 30 minutes when it comes to Bitcoin. It's a very obviously highly volatile asset. We all know that. But the more important thing is, uh, we were on the podcast, like what day is that? With the long lower wick when the SEC news came out, or, no, or not the SEC, the US Treasury, uh, further, 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 further. With the long wick when we breached the 50 day, right there. That was uh, mid-April. Yeah, so that was a Sunday. We were on the podcast right there and we, oh, we yeah. predicted head and shoulder would form because we broke the 50 week, which was, or the 50 day, which was the first time since the breakout at 10,000, we literally made a reel on that and we had a complex head and shoulder uh, form. So in, in February, we had the most further left shoulder. In March, we had the second left shoulder. Then we had the head at like 64.5. We had like one or two shoulders in the last couple of weeks. We're breaking the neckline. And this is going a lot lower than 44,000. People need to realize this. So if you're not, uh, if you're in that denial phase of Bitcoin, like you really got to look at your. Breaking up a little bit, buddy. Rising tide or lowering it can, um, I just froze on your screen. Yeah, your your voice um, froze up for a second there. Um, Are we didn't back? Too much. Are good? Yeah, oh yeah, I got you. Ah, sorry. I don't, I don't know where we left off, but you see that big head and shoulders right there. You see left shoulder, second left shoulder, head, two right shoulders. Uh, this thing, if you can go to a weekly chart, we're probably going to test that 50 week. That's my next level of support right here. Is that like 27,000, but the 50 week's going to go up and price is going to consolidate. So let's just say 30 to be fair. 28, yeah. Yeah. Like that's, that's where I see price going. I see maybe just a hair under 30,000, 29-ish. Perfect. And that's going to coincide with the, but that's going to coincide with the 50 yeah. going up, right? Yep. That's Perfect. what I'm expecting. Yep. And then and long so, term, we're hitting the 50 month. Well, it's way down. It's way down. It's a long way to go, folks. Yeah, those those two periods I remember they they were that was legit capitulation. That was COVID, and that was um, 2019. Oh, that was the uh, the bond thing. December 18. That was when the bond um, yields. Yeah. Yeah, that was when Powell said uh, yep, it's very historic. Right he said we're a long way from neutral. He said that the whole market um, imploded. And yeah, Bitcoin did touch that, that 50 month, but like people need to realize you have to buy assets when they're close to their moving averages, when they're close to their average price. If you're buying it, when you're 
500% plus above your moving averages, well, that's overvalued relative to its previous, um, its previous price or its price average. So you always want to buy close to that level or even below it. It's an yeah, average it's, at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of people even look at the indicators and not quite sure what it means. Like they know it's the average, like a 50 day moving average, but from a psychological standpoint, I don't think they quite know what it means. It's like, just imagine if a price is trading above um, what it, what its average was for the last 50 wow. days. It means it went up super freaking fast. And anything goes up fast, it's very likely to come down just as fast. So that's the psychological portion of it, right? Especially with Bitcoin, because you have something that moves, it could do like a 2x in like, what, a few weeks? And it's silly to think that no one's going to take profit. Because I, I know when Bitcoin goes up and it sells off, I go on Twitter and I was like, who could be selling Bitcoin? It's the greatest thing on earth. I'm like, people who just did a 3x, they sold. I guarantee you they sold. Right? And we were that's the narrative of bubbles, man. Like, do you remember the cannabis bubble of like 2016? Dude, I lost money on that. Yeah. So like, that's exactly what I'm saying though. It's like a zero sum game bubbles at the end of the day, but people were talking about cannabis. Like it was going to save the world from like everything from like hunger to like world crises. And that like, it would bring us to this like new golden age of, you know, economics uh, because we were legalizing cannabis and there was a lot of money to be made. Um, but a lot of people were buying these like way stretched above their moving averages and people lost a lot of money and you had you, you had a lot of coins come out of the woodwork or not coins sorry i got tokens on the mind we had a lot of uh you know marijuana ipos and new stocks and spin-offs whatever and people were buying these coins at like crazy levels or these these stocks crazy levels and they don't exist today three four five years later they didn't exist they went bankrupt or they merged at like just crazy low levels people lost a lot of money in cannabis. People lost a lot of money in other bubbles too. So crypto is not unlike any other bubble. So if you're going to trade it, if you're going to play it, just be smart about it. Know what you're willing to risk. Have a diversified portfolio and buy these things when they're closer to the moving averages. Don't fall for hype. Don't buy them when, you know, uh, sentiment has reached a fever pitch. Buy them at like sensible levels. So, so that's where the patient's got to come into play it's painful looking at something that you want to buy continue to go up in price but you got to realize it won't continue forever well now they realize it's, it won't continue forever but why do people want to buy it that's my question like what about oh. dogecoin or shiba inu coin oh because you saw like 10 guys on the internet and like some family members and neighbors and uh sort of colleagues you know they made 300 in the last couple of weeks so you got to get in because if not, you're going to miss out and you're going to lose out and everyone's going to become a millionaire and you're not like, I don't, I don't, I don't fall for that, man. Well, I, I want to point out that I was, uh, I, I did get caught up briefly into the, uh, the cannabis thing. I think about Aurora. I think that was it. But, but here's the thing, like the part of the reason I'm a data fiend now is because I make mistakes like that. Right. And so I bought it to Aurora and my mistake was that I bought the hype and I didn't do my homework basically. And what I found out after was, so I read this, uh, read a few studies during that time. They said that uh, they predicted last year, 2020, that the just the Canadian cannabis market would be about something like $4 billion a year. I want to point out to everybody that the current North American market is barely $4 billion a year. That's how badly those projections were missed. I mean, like, so now that's why I'm a data fiend because I want, if I'm buying some, if I'm risking my money, because that's what everyone is doing, I'm going to make sure I do my homework.
and respect that money. Right. Well, even if it is as big as they said it was, I mean, they're growing potatoes at the end of the day. It's an agricultural commodity. So as more producers enter the market, it's supply and demand, it's economics 101, prices are going to go down and the margins are going to decrease. And there's still a black market. The black market, you know, never yeah. went away. And um, there's a lot of different players out there. I mean, you saw it in the Colorado and in the California market. Like these people got squeezed, like prices went down for like a gram of gram of weed went down like, you know, 70, 80, 90%. It just became, they became extremely efficient at producing these and the market opened up new players, less regulation. Um, so great for consumers. yeah, it's, it's, great for consumers. it's amazing for consumers and yeah. it's great. But as an investor, there's better places you want to be in. And that's why I'm not a huge fan of commodities because you're really just like playing to the whims of the market. Like, you know, the market loves oil right now. It loves copper. But, you know, once these mines and these rigs open back up and more people are in profit, you know, people in the oil sands, you know, Saudi Arabia starts, you know, cranking up, uh, cranking up yeah. the oil taps. And they're saying, yeah, we, we could sell our oil at 80 bucks. Let's do it. Um, you're going to see, uh, you know, prices come down precipitously. So, you know, if you weren't investing at, in oil at like negative 30 or 30 and you're just starting to warm up to it at like 70, 80 dollars a barrel, like you should really just, you know, take a look at yourself and maybe you shouldn't be doing your own trading. And I'm not trying to say that in like a rude way or anything, but you have to like hone in on your emotions and really develop a framework and develop like just guidelines on how you trade and how you invest because it's investing at the end of the day. Why don't we do this? Why don't we start talk, capping off the show by giving some resources? Um, I mentioned Peter Lynch. I, I, I highly recommend everybody look at him for uh, investing advice and what his thesis is. And I like uh, Buffett. I agree with him less and less these days, but his his original philosophy is like is, is still like some of the most sound investing advice ever. Like what we're talking about right now with the um, with the cannabis Auroras, it's because these are businesses with zero barrier to entry, right? Warren's always saying, find a business that's got a moat, something that they do better than everybody else that they can't catch and invest in that company. When you invest in a company that's like, that's got no barrier to entry, everybody with, with a pocket cash can get into it. And that's what we've seen happen yeah. with, with weed. So, so, so find companies that have a moat and companies that have like an actual brand, like it's not just a commodity business, but also find companies that are profitable or that have a roadmap to profitability or that have visibility of earnings in sight. A dividend's always great too. Uh, going back to Peter Lynch, he is fantastic. I have not talked about Peter Lynch with you on this show yet, but his book, One Up on Wall Street, if you're just getting into investing or you want even just to have just something nice to read, One Up on Wall Street is the greatest book just on retail investing and about investing in what you know. So I think that's great. I think Warren Buffett's great. We talked about Jeremy Siegel on your show before, and uh, his book is a really, um, really, really good book. It's called Stocks for the Long Run, and it's a little bit more in depth. It gives like more statistics and facts, but like that's a great book too that I'd put um, in your um, sort of repertoire or just on your bookshelf. Uh, what else can I think about? You don't have to learn how to read like how to read charts. You don't have to learn about Japanese candlesticks because like trading, like you have to establish, are you a trader or are you a long-term investor? Yes. So that's, right. that's that. What else can I think about? Um, I had something else. Psychology. Is, 
Mm. psychology is important. And just to like, you know, think about it as a chess match. If you're going to be doing any sort of trading, uh, and Kalen's talked a lot about that. So for all of our viewers, if you want to go back and look at the reels and look at the previous videos, David and Kalen have done some really good stuff on trading and market psychology. So I'd recommend to look at that and um, keep up with the news, keep up with politics um, and look at a variety of news sources. Because again, like things are narrative based. There's a lot of um, things that are biased just for clickbait, right? Yeah, I think uh, that's one mistake I think people need to really be conscious of. It's like, it's really easy and comfortable to think, okay, if I want to get into investing, let me pick up a few sources that I trust and just only listen to these uh, these sources. The, the problem is these sources can be biased, they could be wrong. And so you need a wide variety of resources for information just to get the clear picture. It's the, the truth is always somewhere in the middle, right? And going back to what you said before, because you said it so eloquently, man was just the fact that you have to go look through like everything. You have to go through um, all the news sources. You have to look at the actual company financials, or even if you can't do that, look through their investor presentations. Because if you look through an investor presentation, this is all stuff that's online. You can find out amazing things. You can find out about all the growth initiatives and the markets that the company's in, and you can find out about the board of directors and the people leading the company. So. If you're not like looking at the investor presentations, that's really, really key. And that's a free resource on their website. That's great too. You can go on their earnings calls. So like, look at like everything and really do like a an approach, like make up your own mindset, look at everything yes. and look at, you know, the market, the economy, look at bond yields start understanding the bond market, do some reading on that. I mean, there's really so much to do. Like this really isn't for everybody, but if you think that it is for you, look at everything and then make your own mind up, make your own opinion on it. And then you can act with conviction. Like you shouldn't be going on a chat room or getting a tip from someone and like forming an opinion on a stock or an asset class and investing like on a whim. You should be uh, really strategizing and being tactical in your research. So that when it's time to make a long-term investment or a trade, if that's what you want to do, that you'll have a good opinion and you'll have actual, um, like a leg to stand on. Yeah, I think that's, that's important in so many ways. It's like, I think um, if you don't, if you get into a position and you, you, you didn't fully flesh out your thought process, or maybe if you didn't even have one and the thing turned on you, you won't, you won't even know why or how you got, you went wrong. But if you did your homework, it's fine to be wrong because if you did your homework, you'll know where you went wrong and then you can learn and you can iterate and then get better. So, so I think people need to realize that like investing isn't a side hustle. It's not something you do, you know, as a hobby, right? And you should really enjoy it. You guys were talking about um, like income streams and how people want to be like reliant, like not have a job and make money off trading in the stock market. For all of you guys out there, you're probably new investors out there. I want to tell you, you haven't seen a bear market yet. I'm not sure how long you've been trading for, whether it's six months, a year, maybe you went through COVID. I'm not sure, but you definitely didn't see 2015, 2016. You definitely didn't see 2011. You definitely didn't see 2008, 2009 or the dot-com boom and bust. Uh, or you didn't you know, read about that, became well-versed and analyzed all of, all of the charts and all of the rhetoric and read you know, first-hand accounts. Um, just be a student of the market and start to understand that 
there's going to come a point where there's going to be a real bear market in all assets. And there's going to come a point where like every day you're just going to feel shitty because the stock market's not going to be up every day and you're not going to make a 10% return every week or every month. And it's important that you recognize that now and prepare yourself for that. Like, I still think we have a long way to go and there's a lot of really good times ahead for us and that we're in a long secular bull market for equities, but the market's cyclical. There's bull markets and bear markets. At some point, the jig does stop. And that's what's happening with crypto right now and other asset classes. But um, just recognize. Sorry to cut you off, but I just, I just thought of something that's really funny. You are actually the optimist of the three of us. <laughs> and you're the one warning about downturns the most. I love it. Well, yeah, I mean, I do call myself the bull of Bay Street. I am really bullish on this secular bull market, but I understand that markets are cyclical. You don't go up in a straight line forever. We have downturns, we have corrections, we have bear markets, we have even depressions every, you know, like hundred years, whatever, to um, keep us in check. And a lot of these are black swan events. So I'm not gonna predict what's gonna be the next, you know, black swan event, the next hurricane or the next, you know, big uh, economic downturn. Like I'm not gonna predict that because no one knows. No one has a crystal ball. But if you have a nice, disciplined approach to your portfolio and you're diversified and you're invested in good long-term companies that are going to be around 5, 10, 20, 50 years from now that have really good uh, you know, earning streams and you're getting dividends, you'll never have to worry. Yeah, I think uh, to start off with, I think people have to question if you want to invest. Um, to know if this is money that you're going to need in the short to medium term or, or long term, right? So I think what's helped me be an investor is because all the money that I make, except for this one time, this Tesla purchase, all the money I make is for my retirement. I'm not trying to like, I'm not even trying to save to buy a house. This is all my retirement. And so thinking with that, with the, with the long time horizon helps me a lot with making long-term decisions versus short-term decisions. Like it's really helped yeah. me be patient. I think yeah. that, if you wanted to structure it in a way where like X percent of your portfolio, I'm not going to go out giving asset allocations here, but if yeah. you're going to say X percent of your portfolio is for long-term and you're putting that in like the S&P 500 or the NASDAQ, or you're putting it in like really good blue chip stocks versus, you know, you put this percentage in like, this is my trading portfolio. This is for my, you know, home run hits. Like this, maybe I have like a little bit of crypto here, which like I'm not going to advocate for, but if you want that, then fine. You want to, put some of these really speculative growth stocks that are trading at like crazy obscene valuations, like go ahead with that. But just know if that doesn't pan out, you'll always have like this left and that's like your nest egg and that's your long-term stuff. And over the long-term, you know, I'm not going to tell you that a, a long-term portfolio of like the S&P 500 won't be down over a one-year period because it definitely has, you know, or over a five-year period, it could be down. But over like a 15-year period, that's never happened. Over a 20-year period, you're having like amazing gains. And stocks have outperformed bonds and they've outperformed, you know, all sort of, you know, short-term treasuries and they've outperformed the dollar and they've outperformed gold vastly. And it's going to outperform crypto too. You heard it from me first. Yeah, yeah. And I, I also want to point out to people that uh, uh, Brennan is not against crypto. He's just against bubbles and he's against hype. Because you, 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 I think you're modest, but you make quite a bit of money in crypto. 
So <laughs> yeah, so I'm not going to give uh, exact numbers, but I'll give timeframes. I was yeah. super bullish on Bitcoin and I was super bullish on the technical uh, sort of setup there. And I was investing when you were investing last year in like March, April and May. And I was like establishing a very nice position in Bitcoin. And it was like, you know, mid four digits at that point, right? And then yeah. really quickly, you know, we had to deal with some summer volatility very quickly, you know, five digits, 10,000, 20,000, 30,000, 40,000. And at that point, I said, this is getting too hot. I'm seeing a lot of these new crypto uh, coins start to come to market. And the whole premise for me was that Bitcoin was not a currency, but it was a store of value. There's only 21 million Bitcoin that can ever be mined. And that's great because I'm able to grab a couple of those Bitcoin and kind of make them mine. However, when you have like Dogecoin minting 14 million coins per day and you have like, what's the token supply of Shiba Inu token? Several hundreds of trillions of tokens. That completely undermines Bitcoin's fixed supply and completely diminishes that uh, low supply because like what differentiates Bitcoin from all of these other coins at this very moment, at this very moment, none. So I was able to, um, uh, I was able to get out of that position. I was able to put it for something I was more comfortable in. I didn't time the top um, completely right, but I got close enough that I was super happy with that. And I envision a point where Bitcoin's going to go even lower than that point. Um, so right well, now, I'm definitely bearish on crypto. There's no well, doubt about that. I want to make a point. You, you just mentioned something that's really interesting. Like, I, I want to make a point to people that you don't have to time the top. Because here it is playing out, right? You didn't, you didn't even think about timing the top. But what, did, what, what, did, what happened afterwards was that you were able to now take that money, that profit, and make other investments. There are always other opportunities. I think people forget that. It's like, yeah, Bitcoin's going up right now. I think they're going to, uh, about it with the mentality that this is a one-time thing. I, I don't know why, but like, there's always other opportunities. The trick is to have money available to, to seize those opportunities. Well, look at your Tesla. You were investing during that like three-year grueling consolidation phase, but you knew that it was a solid company. You knew that it was undervalued and you knew that people weren't acknowledging something about Tesla. So that's what I was doing right now. I was reallocating dollars towards a trade that really panned out that I wasn't comfortable anymore, that too many people were getting involved with. Like I said, markets go up with the least amount of people and down with the most. And I was able to reallocate that in less crowded trades, trades that are undervalued, that the herd isn't there yet. And I was able to put those there and just wait and just chill out because those trades will end up working at some point. I mean, they already are, but let's just wait for the NASDAQ to breach that 14,000 level. And like I said, the larger the consolidation, the larger the breakout. And that's exactly what's going to happen here. You know, we're talking about a 16 year consolidation on the NASDAQ, 16, 17 year, some point that's going to break out. And like I said, uh, on the other side of the coin, too stretched above moving averages, eventually the moving averages meet. And I'm not sure at what level, but I think it's price that's extended. So I think it's going to be uh, price correction uh, plus time consolidation. And like, that's where I stand on Bitcoin. There's really not much else that I can say about that. And when I'm, you know, um, giving people a hard time for Bitcoin, it's not directed at Bitcoin. It's uh, directed at 
the animal spirits, as we call them on Wall Street, the herd mentality, and the thousands of other coins that just, you know, sprouted out of nowhere that just as quickly as they came are going to go and disappear. Yeah, I think uh, I think we can end it there. So what do you think our uh, unifying message this episode was? Uh, psychology? Should we call it psychology? But the most I'm going to have thing. to look back and uh, kind of think about everything that we talked about. We talked about a lot. Well, we really touched on inflation. We really touched about market psychology. Um, and we talked about bubbles, a lot about bubbles. Yeah. Oh, I'm really perfect. looking forward to next week. It was a great episode. We have a lot of earnings this week. We have a lot of the Asian companies, uh, the Chinese companies like Tencent and JD.com reporting this week. Uh, we have some of the um, video game companies like Take-Two Entertainment this week. As well, we have some of the retail companies like uh, Walmart and Home Depot. Um, uh, they're reporting earnings this week. So we're going to have a lot to talk about next week. Hopefully, we'll have Kalen back. And as always, uh, I really appreciate it, David. Yeah. Great to and, and by the way, you said something earlier that I think I, I said something on my show. No, this is our show. We're, we're all a team now. So welcome aboard. All right. Perfect. All right, YouTubers. All right, YouTubers. See you guys next week.